ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. Hey, folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co-number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, where the big boys play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. Well, hello, everyone. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Chad. How are you, Chad? Doing great. Yeah, and uh, just uh, just before we start here, I'll say uh, thanks to Scott and Justin again for uh, the Starcade show. Um, I think it's a show that we got a lot of reaction for. Um, and uh, if you have time, check out their JJ Dillon interview because uh, really it's one of the better interviews I've listened to for a while. So if you've got a spare two hours, um, put that in. So we're looking at Clash of the Champions uh, 5 this week, heading bravely into 1989. Are you excited, Chad, for 1989? <laughs> I am. I am really excited to see uh, 1989. I think it's one of them signature banner years for uh, NWA, WCW. So uh, I'm interested to see if it holds up on these super shows. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I don't know if Clash Five is the most promising start, but we'll <laughs> let's uh, yeah. let's have a look. Um, just before we start, then I'm going to have a look at the observers. Uh, I think we're going to go with a slightly new format this week and uh, leave the comments till the end, especially because there's, there's quite a lot of them. And uh, we understand that not everyone loves uh, sitting through loads of comments. Um, so we're starting with the January 16th uh, Observer. And Meltzer has the big news that Steamboat is joining the NWA. He'll be the headline uh, against Flair in Chicago uh, in, the, in the February pay-per-view. Um, and will work at least semi-regularly, Meltzer says. Um, now, we've had a big discussion about this, uh, about how much Meltzer knew Steamboat coming in before. Now, you, you've read uh, some of these observers as well, right, Chad, or, or, or not yet? Yeah, I've looked at just a few of them, uh, mainly the uh, ones right after Starcade. Yeah, now, m- my impression is that Meltzer... Uh, if he knew that Steamboat was coming in, he didn't know when or the specifics of it until this newsletter. Um, there's some disagreement about that. There are there guys saying that he knew as far back as November 88. Um, so if you do have access to the observers, I'd, uh, I'll, I'll leave you make your own minds up. But my impression is that Meltzer was kind of... I wouldn't say he, he was taken by surprise, but he was kind of um, caught on the hoof in a way. Uh, after he made his big predictions for 1989, then Steamboat co- comes in, and Steamboat isn't a part of those 89 predictions. So, um, make of that what you will. Um, also expected in before uh, the pay-per-view were Butch Reed, Brian Pillman, and uh, Jimmy Garvin, I guess, back from injury. Um, Starcade got a 94% thumbs-up rating from Observer readers, and did a 1.8 buy rate. Um, as a comparison... Survivor Series that year got 2.2. So, you know, NWA not doing too bad. Um, obviously, they did the best in the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, but also did well in Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Philly, Chicago, and surprisingly, New York and San Francisco. 
So, you know, they're, they're not doing too badly going into 89 here. Um, in the January 23rd newsletter, uh, the big news is that Dusty Rhodes has finally resigned from the NWA and has walked out of his remaining bookings. He's bought a 60% uh, share in the practically dormant Florida Championship Wrestling promotion, uh, which in a way is to be expected. Now, Chad, how happy are you to see Dusty go at this point? Um, I mean, I, I, I think it was clearly time, so, you know, uh, pro probably for the best that a switch has occurred. Now, one thing that confused me about this is that I thought, it, do you remember ages ago I mentioned that uh, Crockett had bought the Florida Championship Wrestling? Um, I thought that the NWA already owned that, so I was a bit surprised to see Dusty um, buying a stake in this one. And I couldn't work out if that is the same Florida promotion, you know, the old Eddie Graham promotion, um, or whether this is a new promotion that Dusty is starting from scratch. Any ideas on this? Um, I do not have any ideas on that. So not sure. There's such, I think they're, one thing, there's such limited uh, footage of Florida, like mm -hmm. any iteration that sort of its history and the ownership and all that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Well, if any listeners are from around there or, or have any knowledge of the Florida Championship Wrestling um, picture and what it was that Dusty was buying here in 89, um, you know, let us know. Because uh, clearly it was a short run thing uh, because Rhodes would... Uh, okay, I'm looking it up now. Um, championship Wrestling from Florida was the Eddie Graham promotion from 1961 to 1987 mm. uh, when it did close. But the, the rights were sold. So when Mike Graham uh, tried to start it up again, he had to change the name to Florida Championship Wrestling. I see. You uh, see I so he kind of just did a restart with a little tad different name. Right. See, I, I thought they'd bought that out in 87 because that was when Luger and Windham and a bunch of other guys came in, if you, if you remember. Um, I also thought they got Gordon Soley as part of that deal, but um, seemingly not. Um, Bam Bam Bigelow is history, uh, and there's no plans for him to return after his tour uh, to New Japan. So a very short run for Bam Bam there. Um, he says the Clash uh, 4 show was the third highest rated TV special during uh, the fourth quarter of 88, behind only the Gator Bowl and the Holiday Bowl, which is pretty good. Uh, I'm guessing those are big uh, football games, right? Yeah, those are uh, college football bowl games. Right. Um, so d they're not doing too bad in the TV ratings, although I'm kind of surprised there. Was he just talking about TBS? Because... I'd be surprised, for example, if uh, the Clash 4 show was getting more than Saturday Night's main event, for example. I would assume this may just be a uh, kind of a TBS thing. I don't know um, where the Gator Bowl would have been, what channel that would have been on back then, because the rights of those changed so much, but uh, it may just be a TBS isolated thing. January the 30th, and the new NWA booker is George Scott, brother, of course, of our favorite, Sandy Scott. Um, he booked for JCP back in the uh, mid-70s, when it was the mid-Atlantic uh, region. And at that time, he had Flair and Steamboat on top. Um, and 
Meltzer says that he took them from just another uh, regional office to a top two or three promotion in the country, which I didn't know. I'd always assumed that Mid-Atlantic was one of the bigger uh, promotions, but um, apparently uh, George Scott was a big differentiator in making it, you know, a top two or three promotion. Apparently, though, he left Crockett on bad terms and didn't, st uh, didn't speak to his brother Sandy for a, a good couple of years. He then booked for Vince in 84-85 and again left them uh, on bad terms. He also did some booking uh, down in Georgia um, and for uh, World Class in Texas um, in 86, which is generally considered a failure. Now, apparently two weeks before this, Scott was hired, but then immediately fired the same day uh, when Jim Crockett Jr. found out uh, that uh, Scott had been hired. Eddie Gilbert uh, was interviewed for the post, um, but Jim Hurd didn't want another dusty situation with an active uh, worker booking. That they then turned around after firing George Scott uh, and hired him anyway, um, Meltzer says, shows how little power Jim Crockett has left in the company, uh, which is now virtually zero. Um, and apparently, he says, Jim Barnett was a key player in getting uh, George Scott appointed. So, yeah, you, you know anything about George Scott beyond what I've, I've said there, Chad? Any uh, any initial thoughts on him? Um, I mean, not a ton, except what we'll kind of see later on in his uh, run here as the booker. Um, so, kind of don't want to spoil what my <laughs> kind of initial impressions of him are. Um. Now, Vince uh, is apparently planning on running a three-hour free-to-air free, uh, TV special to run against the Treetown uh, Rumble. I think that would be a three-hour edition of primetime. Meltzer says that this is going to piss off uh, the cable companies, all of whom are sweet with Turner. Now, we get some uh, more comings and goings. Uh, Al Perez and Dick Murdoch quit the NWA for work to work for Dusty's uh, Florida promotion. Uh, Baby, Baby Doll has also gone down there. Um, so obviously Dick Murdoch, big friends with uh, Dusty Rhodes, but I think that's the last we're going to see of Al Perez, uh, Chad. <laughs> yeah, and um, again, that kind of goes into the lack of footage because uh, I've, I've sort of been scouring YouTube the last uh, few weeks looking for Al Perez stuff, and there's not a whole ton out there, to be honest, which is kind of disappointing. Uh, Larry Zabisco has also quit, uh, and he's gone back to the AWA with the promise of a title run. Um, there's rumours about Barry Windham's future too, um, and uh, there's talk that he might be going to work for Dusty. Now, if you were Barry Windham in 1989, would you be going to work for Dusty? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but for the time being, he's staying put. Uh, after Dusty's departure, the bunkhouse stampede concept has been ditched entirely. You happy about that, Chad? <laughs> I think that's a smart move. I mean, again, maybe on the house shows it uh, it worked, but I think clearly as a pay-per-view signature match, we saw it did not work uh, last year. Yeah, and the fact that Dusty kept pushing it is is kind of proof of Dusty's ego as well. You know, he can't see a bad idea if he if he has come up with it. You know, I think we've seen. Um, both the good points and the bad points of Dusty as a booker. So it's good that we're getting a little bit of a break from him after uh, so many years. Sure. 
the February 6th newsletter, there's a lengthy discussion of Vince versus Ted Turner, which is quite interesting to read through. I'm not going to go through it exhaustively. But the big thing that Meltzer seems to be obsessed with around this time is a big head-to-head pay-per-view clash with WrestleMania this year. He says that basically WrestleWar from the Omni is going to go head-to-head with WrestleMania. Now, clearly this didn't happen because uh, WrestleWar happened in Nashville and in May. So, um, you know, but most of this newsletter is uh, talking about how the war is heating up. Um, And an initial uh, move that Vince uh, makes here is he poaches J.J. Dillon. Um, So we've seen the last of J.J. Dillon now for quite a while. Um, And uh, he's brought him in not as a manager, but as an assistant booker on about $185,000 a year. Uh, purportedly. So, seeing the last of JJ, uh, Chad. Yeah, we probably should have mentioned that um, in the Starcade show. I, I had kind of forgotten how really quickly he vanished from the scene. Uh, it was a pretty abrupt exit for JJ, uh, but kind of sad to see him go. Uh, when we do see him come back, it won't be as kind of a manager role. Um, so, I guess we can kind of just stay. I'll just say, uh, kind of in conclusion of what we saw in JJ, that I really enjoyed um, his what we saw of his run here, and thought he added a lot, and uh, kind of was raised in my eyes a good bit based on what we saw. He's a lot more active than I remembered. Yeah, d- d- me too. Um, do you think that he's the best manager we've seen, or would you give that to Jim Cornette? I, w- I would still give that to Cornette. Um, but I do think uh, JJ now has a solid case of kind of being in that grouping when you sort of discuss best managers of all time. Uh, I mean, I think there's some clear hierarchy there uh, with Cornette and Heenan and even Jimmy Hart from Memphis in the upper echelon. But, uh, but you know, JJ, I think for sure de- deserves to be in that kind of second rung of the ladder. Yeah, um, I'd put I'd put him above like Gary Hart, uh, obviously Paul Jones, <laughs> uh, Skandor Akbar. I'd put him above all those managers. Yeah, I mean, th- there's an older generation of uh, fan who always talk about the um, what do they call them? Uh, the, the three uh, the three wise men. Three wise men of the East. Yeah, uh, Freddie Blassie, the Grand Wizard, Lou Albano. Lou Albano. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm not really familiar with, that's one of the kind of kind of gray areas as far as my watching is sort of the stuff that is available from the late 70s, early 80s, Yeah. Uh, Hogan, WWF, so I wouldn't be uh, really educated in gauging their worth, but, uh, but I, I could see Dylan competing with them. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. He's not out of place in that great manager conversation, certainly. Um, so, uh, yeah, I did think that it was kind of weird at the end there, where you had kind of like the stump, like the remains of the horsemen left, Jess Windham and Flair and JJ, after Anantali had gone. I, I thought they could have um, sorted that out a lot quicker than they did, because they were still calling themselves the horsemen and everything. Um, I mean, I, mean um, I did, for preparation of watching this show, I watched the uh, Steamboat debut match, 
and as they come out, they're still giving the four horsemen signal and everything, and there's only three of them, including JJ, so <laughs> it kind of looks a little stupid, but... Um, so the February the 13th uh, newsletter, uh, he says the pro- proposed pay-per-view for April the 2nd is off, and instead the NWA will run a three-hour uh, free-to-air uh, super show in New Orleans, uh, and we now know that this is Clash 6, Rage and Cajun, a uh, famous show. Um, Dick Murdoch uh, signed a $100,000 a year deal with TBS, so he's back in the NWA after only one week's TV taping for Dusty's Florida promotion. So, yeah, I said they were big friends, but obviously, you know, there's only so uh, far friendship will go. Um, he's also allowed to work uh, his New Japan dates. That seems a lot of money to be giving Dick Murdoch in 1989, but I guess uh, he he's still a drawer of some sort. I mean, they always kind of use him as a mid-carder, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't... I, yeah, that, does, that did seem kind of uh, a little bit of uh, overpayment for somebody of Dick Murdoch, kind of his level on the card at this point. Yeah, but I, I, this is a reoccurring theme with both Turner and WCW that we'll see occur time and again. Guys on permanent contracts, uh, you know, guaranteed money. Um, it's already starting now. I can see it. Because um, all of these guys, uh, I should mention, like Sting, Flair, they all have contract renewals coming up in the next year. Um, so I, I think we're going to see stupid money, you know, starting. Uh, you know, they always talk about Sting money. I, I think it may be starting soon. <laughs> um, Barry Windham uh, also signed a new contract, and uh, he's staying as well. Now, February 20th, this is big news, Chad. Tony Schiavone has jumped to Titan. And uh, I'll be honest, I completely forgot about Schiavone jumping to WWF. Uh, apparently, he's on 138k uh, in his job. Um, and... Uh, th- he was unhappy, basically, with the decision to take him off all of the network shows. Uh, and at this point, he was only the lead on uh, syndicated shows for NWA. And uh, I think they've gone with the team of um, Jim Ross and Coddle in recent pay-per-views as well. So we've seen a reduction in the amount of Shivani on air since uh, since Jim Ross turned up, really. Um, and there's talk of him being uh, Vince's eventual on-air replacement. Uh, and we all know how that turned out. but. Um, yeah, Shivani leaving at this point. Uh, I, I didn't recall it being this early, and uh, even watching this show, I didn't really process that, but uh, it makes sense now, after watching the show. Yeah, and uh, he um, Meltzer says that this uh, means that the NWA needs a new announcer. Uh, the, the big man in the, the leading candidate is Lee Marshall. Um, who's absolutely awful. Have you, ever, have you ever seen Lee Marshall? Yeah, I'm pretty uh, familiar with Lee Marshall. And he uh, also pops up a good bit on some of the 1990s stuff I've watched. Uh, never been a big fan. but D- D- Jack Jack Reynolds is also in the picture. Jack Reynolds was the uh, ring announcer, by the way, for, uh, for this show. Um, okay. And uh, apparently he did such a bad job with that that he he put himself out of the running. <laughs> um, and uh, he says there seems to be little interest in either Lance Russell or Gordon that's, Soley. That's exactly what I was about to say. Why not Lance Russell? Because I know he came in 
but uh, I mean, I would not say, you know, right now that they're extremely uh, sparse in announcers. You do have Ross, Cottle, uh, and I mean, on this show, I thought Magnum TA did a pretty good job. Yeah. Uh, you, you had Funk coming in, and I know he did some commentary for them, so... They can use Cornette on commentary. Yeah, I mean... That's, Paulie. That's, even, even Michael Hayes. Yeah. So... Well, I believe, I could be wrong here, but I believe that the guy who ends up getting this job was Gordon Soli. But I could be wrong. Because I know Soli crops up soon. Right, okay. Uh, well, at least in by 1990, he's part of the company again. Um... And then March of first uh, uh, edition is actually the review of the show, um, so we'll get into that later. So let's get into uh, Clash of the Champions Five. What is the tagline here? Uh, Saint Valentine. Yeah, Saint Valentine's Day Massacre, which is uh, I don't know how familiar with American history you are, but that's uh, that's the name of a famous. Uh, execution style murder that happened on St. Valentine's Day headed up by Al Capone's uh, group in Chicago. Yeah, and I, I was always disappointed that this didn't become a... I think this is one of the coolest names for an event ever. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre. That's an awesome name for a wrestling show, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like it, and WWF actually kind of lifted it with the Vince versus... Uh, Austin Cage match on their pay-per-view. Yeah, I, I thought it was used again. Um, and this happened on uh, uh, Valentine's Day, February the 14th, in Cleveland. Uh, in the, it was a Cleveland Convention Center in Ohio. Commentators are Jim Ross and Magnum TA. Um, and they do talk a little bit at the start here. And I have to say that I do think Magnum is a pretty good broadcaster. Like, he's made this transition pretty well. And uh, I quite like him. You know, he's he's not... Uh, he's definitely not a Billy Graham or a you know or a Bruno Sammartino or someone like that. He's not a, he's not out of place on the team. I agree with that. I thought he did a uh, actually a, probably a better job than I imagined when I first saw him in the uh, color commentator seat. Yeah, and uh, well, I, I haven't made any small secret of the fact that I'm not a fan of the Jim Ross Bob Coddle uh, combo. I know a lot of people are. But um, I don't think I honestly don't think Coddle has been bringing much to any of the shows that we've seen, in certainly in '88. I don't know what your feelings are, Chad. Um, I mean, I don't think he's been very good in '88. I, I, I do think Coddle actually probably his best stuff that I've seen of him is when he was in Smoky Mountain with Dutch Mantel like 92, 93, uh, and then going into 94 before Dutch left. Uh, so that would probably be Pete Cottle, but I do know that I've liked Cottle before. I mean, I thought he was pretty good in the first couple of shows that we reviewed. Yeah. Uh, like Starcade 83 and 84, I thought he was definitely better than Soli in those shows. Yeah. And, uh, and I do know that I like his call, for instance, in the, uh, in the Flair versus Steamboat Music City Showdown match, so maybe he'll kind of turn it around a little bit. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, my my main problem with him is that he just kind of speaks in uh, really tired, standard old platitudes. Like, you know, he's just repeating maxims. Old, like he could be watching any match. 
it's right. it's like it's like that gorilla monsoon thing where you could take gorilla and he could basically make the same calls for five different matches you know he's just using the same title phrases um anyway uh the first match here is the midnight express jim Cornette's uh, midnight express versus the russian assassins um who are uh, two mask guys um managed by uh paul jones I noticed uh, going into this that Paul Jones has lost his moustache. Yeah, he's kind of given up his little cowboy type look uh, that he was going for here. He was just in sort of a standard suit. I don't know if we've seen anybody that's went through kind of more transformations look-wise than Paul Jones throughout this whole uh, NWA journey we've been going on. He's really changed his entire look almost two to three times. So I'm to understand then that Ivan Koloff has left now, is he? He's gone. I, I didn't see Meltzer mention it anyway, but he's not it, on this. It, it, it would appear so because there was no mention of him, and uh, it looked like the Russians have kind of moved on to other stuff. So it's terrible that this Russians team won that feud. That's a fucking disgrace. I hate Paul Jones. <laughs> um, so, so the Midnights uh, get the better of the early going here. They're still faces at this point. Um, Paulie uh, dangerously has a insert promo, and he says he's going to take Cornette out of the NWA. Um, so there's a big kind of the Midnight versus Midnight's feud is kind of also a Paulie versus Jim Cornette feud. It seems like those are the two guys who are really being featured in the in the angle. Um, with quite a lot more focus on Condry than Rose, I noticed in the kind of uh, in what the commentators were saying and what Paul E was saying, um, it was like uh, Condry wants to get some time alone with Bob Eaton. They kept on saying things like that. Um, Jones and uh, Paul Jones and Jim Cornette uh, square off, but Lane uh, kind of comes and decks Jones um, before anything can happen. Uh, Paulie Dangerously comes and joins commentary. Um, the Russians are kind of using uh, Killer Bees tactics, or, or I guess uh, the old team, the famous uh, Assassin's team, would have done shit like this as well, um, of you know switching the man without the referee noticing and without tagging. Um, Paulie Dangerously, in an inspired moment on commentary, calls Cornette, um, I, I have to get this right here, a Pee-wee Herman... Uh, with a Norman Bates complex, which I, I thought was a pretty nice reference for a wrestling show. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, uh, as as uh, this happens, the uh, the Russians stay on top uh, with some basic offense, um, bear hugs, uh, Lane as our face in peril. Um, we get a hot tag, um, a double noggin knocker from uh, Bob Eaton, double bulldog spot, Oh, which is quite cool. Some kicks from Lane. We get the big splash from Eaton, and that's your one, two, three. This was basically a, a glorified jobber match that took 12 minutes. Any thoughts, Chad? Um, and I just looked it up, and Ivan did leave January 1989, so uh, no more Ivan either. It's kind of oh. becoming a depressing show where <laughs> a lot of people we really kind of become accustomed to between Dusty, Ivan, and JJ are no longer with us. Um, I thought this match was not, not anything special, but not, not terrible for what they were trying to do. Uh, I thought the Midnights worked hard. The Russians are just, 
they're both big, pretty slow, and real kind of clunky in the ring. Uh, and then when they go on offense, their control segment was not very good at all. Uh, Lane kind of tried, but it just wasn't wasn't very effective with kind of bear hugs and stuff like that. Uh, I do like that they switched because I had a hard part kind of telling them apart. So I thought that was very logical, but uh, really the main takeaway from this match, honestly, is kind of Paul E. on commentary ragging on him. I thought he did a good job hopping up the match at the pay-per-view. So as a match, it's not very good at all, but uh, as we'll soon find out, it may be the best of what we see, in my opinion, tonight. So. God, you're calling this the best match of the night? I don't know, man. Bad stuff ahead. Um, yeah, I, it's the Russians are crap. You know, they're really yeah, not the very Russians good. They're really uh, not very good. Um, I mean, like I said, when Angel of Death came in, um, uh, he's never been somebody that really impressed me with what I'd seen before. And Jack Victory, I'll come to say most of my hate for his second appearance tonight because he does make another appearance, but. Uh, as you'll soon find out, he he did uh, he was involved in two terrible performances on his part on the show. So there's not a lot more to to, to add to that. Um, I did like the double bulldog spot from Bobby Eaton, and uh, I have to say that he has taken the face run by the scruff of the neck. You know, he he hasn't uh, he's really gone for it, Bobby Eaton, and uh, I, I like that from him. One one other quick thing I did like too that. I mean, Cornette still used the racket. So, I mean, I, I always kind of like it. One thing that I sort of hate is sometimes how you get, I mean, for instance, in modern comparison is The Miz. The Miz has just turned from a heel to a baby face, and he's became just the most, like, hateable baby face in the world because he's, he's kind of turned into this just goofball, absolute uh you know, douchebag type baby face in current WWE. So I did, I did like hear that Cornette, you know, he wasn't, he didn't stop cheating. Yeah. He still used the racket and stuff like that, but it, it got cheered. So they didn't completely change their personality just because they changed from heel to face. Yeah. The, the, the only, the only difference between Cornette as a face and a heel is that um, where Cornette the heel would run away, Cornette the face is ready to take someone on. <laughs> right, right. That's pretty much the extent. Um, Bob Coddle is with Ricky Steamboat and his son, who I notice uh, Steamboat's son here has got exactly the same eyebrows as his dad. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah, they, uh, yeah, his son looks a lot. I mean, I'd assume this is, yeah, this would have to be Richie. Yeah. Maybe. Um, so, they, they do look a lot alike now, obviously, so. Um, and, uh, Steamboat says he's here to fight against drugs and corruption. Um, but, and, uh, Coddle basically asked him why he's wrestling tonight so close to his big match with Flair. And he says, well, I needed a tune-up. Um, we get a, a, a clip now of Flair attacking Steamboat. But it ends up, uh, he, Flair attacks Steamboat in a suit. Um, but ends up getting the worst of it. Um, and, Steamboat warns Flair not to get involved tonight. 
Um, so, so what do you think of this uh, iteration of uh, Steamboat the Family Man here? I mean, this is our first little look at him. Yeah, it's, um, well, he got a good bit of booze. I did notice that from the Cleveland crowd. And uh, it's kind of something that we can talk about more once we get to their big uh, mm-hmm. confrontation in this show. But just initially, I thought that this promo was not very good. And uh, it seemed kind of obvious that for this view to succeed, that uh, Flair would sort of have to be carrying the promo side. Yeah, I mean, do you think Steamboat has developed at all since his uh, kind of 83 iteration when we got a couple of promos from him? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I don't think... Um, I mean, I, Steamboat's kind of been a weird promo in that... I mean, in his 94 stuff, I didn't think he was bad, and sometimes he's not bad, but I don't think in many ways he has the ability to kind of really sell a feud with his promos. Mm-hmm. Um, a part of that, though, can kind of be by his whole character. If this is, I mean, some to me, the most memorable promos are stuff kind of vowing revenge or talking about, you know, really kicking ass and stuff like that, whereas... You know, Steamboat's talking about how he has to do it for his family and all this stuff. So it may just kind of be the context of the promo is tough for me to get around. He, he's incredibly straight-laced, isn't he, Steamboat? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think even here in 1989, uh, and again, especially knowing Crockett's kind of audience, uh, seeing somebody this straight-laced, this, you know, by the book, kind of was a recipe for him to get sort of a tepid reaction uh, yeah. versus somebody as flamboyant as Flair. Yeah, well, let's let's get on to that later because I, I do think there's a there's a good point where it's natural to uh, go go further into those things. On our, our next match now is two in two men who were told are undefeated going into this. Steve Casey or Stephen Casey versus Hacksaw Butch Reed. Um, now, I was reasonably excited to see Butch Reed here because uh, on the Mid-South set, he's really good. Um, I will say that. So, I was re- I had a reasonable amount of anticipation. Casey, uh, other than having a dodgy moustache, I don't know much about. Do you? No, not a ton. Um, I, I think most of the time he sort of bounced around a little bit um, and kind of didn't do a whole ton. Of, uh, anything of note. This may be his most uh, high-profile match, actually. Well, they're both booed by the crowd, but uh, Casey is the face. Um, quite obviously, Reed is the heel in this match. Um, Casey works on Reed's arm to start uh, with arm drags, wrist locks, and arm bars. Um, now, two people in the crowd are kissing. Um, and this is one of the things on this show, but particularly with this match, we got a lot of shots of the crowd. And I couldn't help but think that these two people kissing in the crowd were plants, that they they were they were just actors paid to be there. <laughs> um, and I don't know what what made me think that, but I couldn't get that thought out of my head for all of the show. So most of the people that we saw in the crowd, I thought were people who were planted there by the company. <laughs> they didn't seem real to me. The people in this crowd, for some reason. Um, did you see these two guys kissing? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would assume that uh, what kind of happened was probably the cameraman came up to him and 
said, hey, we're about to show you on camera, uh, do something. And I guess them two people decided that what they were going to do were make out with each other in the middle while uh, Casey has an arm bar on. They uh, decided that was the appropriate time to start really making out with each other. And then we also got a young kid in the audience, and uh, I thought it was uh, young John Cena because he gave the uh, you can't see me uh, kind of <laughs> hand gesture where he waved his, waved his hand and fingers in front of his face, just like Cena does now. So I, I thought mm, he might want to sue for uh, copyright infringement. Maybe if Cena was watching Clash 5 when he decided to come up with that. But, uh, it, I mean, it's uh, as we go on, it's kind of telling that this match, uh, really the the main things I remember from this match is the people in the crowd. So that's yeah. usually not a uh, a good sign of how good the match is. Well, I was going to say, those two people are going to be kissing for the next 17 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but Reed's on top uh, now, still with the arm work. Um, it's cantered, and Casey goes back to it. Um, we get... Uh, Knee, you know, you get several knee drops on the arm about eight times from Casey, which looked reasonably uh, like it hurt quite quite a bit. Now we get a test of strength spot uh, with Butch Reeves and Casey, um, and this is a really stupid move uh, by Casey to go for a test of strength with Butch Reeves. I mean, you, you you've got to be an idiot to to, to go for that. There, there's your transition really, because uh, Reed takes some control from this point. We get a chin lock from Reed. Uh, Ross and Magnum talk about. Uh, how often we see the chin lock from uh, different people, uh, which I thought was interesting. I mean, they were doing anything they could to make this match interesting for us. Um, but the the fact that they talked about how the chin lock hurt and uh, why guys go to it so often, I thought was a really nice touch. Um, we get lots of shots of uh, Cleveland fans, um, and like I said, for, for whatever reason, maybe the cameramen were saying do something for the camera or something during this show, but none of them, they all look like actors to me for some reason. Um, I don't know, maybe fashion just went out of the window in 1989, but uh, <laughs> these fans are really dodgy. Um, <laughs> Casey makes a semi-comeback, um, but... Uh, it, Reed um, basically no sells an Irish whip, grabs the rope. Um, the crowd cheers, and they really seem to hate Casey. Like the crowd are well, well down on Casey. Um, Casey does a comeback now with a pair of drop kicks, but Reed catches him going for a crossbody, um, and uh, we get a shoulder block from the top and a very arrogant cover uh, where he kind of poses over Casey for the three count. And uh, this went 17 minutes, Chad. Yeah, way, way too long on this match. I don't know why uh, in the clash we saw it before with the Italian Stallion and we see it here with these two, uh, especially Steve Casey. I don't know why they give these kind of second match on the card signature long matches to these people. Um, I mean, this was just an awful match. There's no other way around it. You had basic arm work, a very long chin lock. Not yeah. a lot of uh, high points at all. The only note of interest that I wrote down is at one point, Casey misses a drop kick. Uh, and it actually looked really good because if you if you think about how most people miss a drop kick, they essentially just take kind of a flat back bump. 
Yeah. And it always looks like, you know, well, what if you'd have hit that? That would have been the worst looking, you know, drop kick in the world if you'd have actually hit that. Uh, Casey actually did it where he's, he landed on his side and shoulder, which is kind of dangerous, I know, but I did like that because at least if Reed had not moved out of the way, it would have been a good, uh, performed drop kick. Uh, but then, you know, Reed followed that up by going back to another fucking chin lock. So, <laughs> you know, that was a very short-lived 10-second uh, highlight in a 17-minute match. So this was awful. Yeah, Meltzer gives it minus one star. He gave the opener half a star. Um, and he's really complaining all the way through this review about um, uh, basically 70s-style arm work. Uh, and I guess he's uh, intimating that this is the influence of George Scott bringing in this kind of slow-paced uh, mat work into the, into uh, into the TV product. Um, I I can't disagree with him. I I don't know if I'd call it 70s uh, arm work, but this was um, clearly somebody had told Steve Casey here uh, go out there and um, you know wrench on his arm for 15 minutes before he pins you. Um, yeah, I, I can't say I want to see too much more of Steve Casey. He didn't do much in this match, that. No, I agree with that. Anyway, um, uh, moving on from that, I, I don't really have a, a lot more to, to add, other than to say, um, I do like, I mean, have you seen the Butch Reed stuff on the Mid-South uh, set there? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, Butch has kind of been a real hit or miss type of guy, um, where I, he's kind of been one of them wrestlers that I've watched where in one match, I think he does really well and turns in a real good performance, and in the next match, he, you know, can't seem bothered. I do think he definitely is a wrestler where he has sort of different levels of motivation. So if he's feeling really motivated and goes out there, he can have a great match. And if he's kind of just saying, ah, screw it tonight, he'll have a uh, pretty pedestrian match. So that's sort of my initial impressions. And he obviously didn't feel too motivated tonight with what we got. Yeah, it, it was a very arrogant cover, I thought. Um, yeah, and Kate, Casey actually almost kicked out of it. I don't know if you noticed that, but like you know, he did sort of his pose and mug and cover. But I mean, it, it, the, the uh, referee drops the three count, and then almost immediately Casey kicks out of it. So that didn't make his uh, finisher look exactly great either. There, there should have been a three-minute squash match if that's what they're going for. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, Flair arrives. Um, um, now and uh, he's in a very uh, <laughs> flashy-looking jacket here, in a pair of shades, and he's got six with it, women with him. Um, he looks like a pimp, basically, and the crowd is really hot. They're very excited to see Ric Flair. Um, Bob Coddle has a massive smile on his face. <laughs> Flair opened this segment by saying, "Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all?" Um, and then he points to the women and he says, "This is the difference between." Uh, me and Ricky Steamboat. Um, I got life right where I want it. Um, and then he gets uh, w the kind of women to do twirls and things. Um, and he tells Steamboat to come out to the ring and to take his pick. Um, he says, you've got to be bored sitting at home every night. He tells Bob Coddle um, 
to take his pick, uh, and uh, Coddle doesn't want to, being a being a good old fashioned uh, you know grandpa family man. Um, and I, <laughs> I couldn't help but think that if that was Mean Gene Okerlund standing there, he'd have been up there like a rat in a pipe, wouldn't he? <laughs> True. Yeah, it would have been. Uh... Gene would have definitely been, I think, uh, sneaking a peek at some of the uh, ladies that were around there. Um, Hiro uh, Matsuta is with uh, Flair 2 uh, as the head of a corporation. Uh, I know you were, uh, I saw in some of the comments there, Chad, that you were wondering about Hiro Matsuta. Did you find anything out, anything more out about him? I, I never found, I guess, just sort of how he kind of arrived or uh, who was really pushing for him to come in, but basically it seems like in early 1989 they were kind of of positioning him as uh, the new James J. Dillon and kind of revitalized the Four Horsemen as the Yamasaki Corporation. Yeah. Uh, But, but, I mean, Hiro Matsuda also had other kind of people that he managed um, in addition to Flair. And I guess Wyndham before he left. Um, so I, it, that's kind of where we're at now. But uh, I, I never thought he added much, and it flopped really, really big because uh, you know he's not around for very long at all in this role. So Hero Matsuzu, of course, is uh, notorious for being a guy who really stretched people coming into the business. I said usually, right. usually the context I hear him talked about. Um, like I remember reading somewhere that you know in, in the history of him doing that, there are only like maybe fifteen or twenty guys who actually made it through his punishing uh, entry to the business. Um, so uh, Steamboat actually does come out now, um, and uh, Flair says um, you've got to be bored to death with the same woman every night. And <laughs> I have to say, Flair is really taking it next level with this. Uh, with this particular feud, like he's pushing the um, he's pushing the boundaries here um, of what you'd expect to see on a on a family orientated wrestling show. Or I guess this this was always aimed at older fans. This product, but there are definitely kids and things in the crowd. Um, Steamboat says, "I despise what you represent, Ric Flair," uh, and he's here to um, uh, stand up for family values. He says that Flair represents all the evil materialistic things in the world today. <laughs> and then uh, Flair says, hey girls, uh, I want you to take one last look at what a loser looks like. <laughs> and then he says to uh, Steamboat, in one of my favorite, all-time favorite lines from Flair, why don't you go home uh, to your missus and do the dishes? <laughs> um, which is a, a, a really good line. Um, after this, a, a brawl breaks out, um, and the crowd is just electric. Uh, St- Steamboat rips uh, Flair's $15,000 suit. Uh, Steamboat basically gets the better of this exchange, and eventually um, hits a crossbody uh, from the top, which kind of gets a you know a three count, but there's obviously this isn't a match. Hiro uh, Matsuta sneaks in from behind him, uh, and they double-team him. He comes back again, and the brawl uh, goes outside. Um, Flair is basically down to his underpants, um, and he uh, disappears in the crowd wearing just his underpants, which must have been ridiculous. Um, uh, and then, in a very strange move, Steamboat puts on the uh, ragged remains of Flair's expensive suit 
and he puts on his shades and then picks up the mic and says, so nature boy, this is what a 15,000 suit, um, $15,000 suit feels like. And then uh, he uh, spits and throws it into the crowd. Um, I thought this was a really good segment to kick this feud off. And um, Chad, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a real um, kind of iconic hot segment between these guys. And I think because it sort of encapsulates, uh, encapsulates everything that this feud represents uh, within 15 minutes. Uh, you get the, I mean, just the absolute stark contrast between Flair and Steamboat. It's really accentuated here. Uh, I mean, Flair comes out with numerous women. Uh, so that sort of tips you off there that these guys are completely different. And they both played their roles really well. Uh, the crowd for the brawl got really hot. So uh, this really kind of pumped me up for their singles match uh, at the Chi-Town Rumble. Yeah, Meltzer's uh, take on this is quite interesting because he says that they basically, this is an exact duplicate of an angle they did in 1978 um, with basically almost all of the same characters. So Bob Coddle was the interviewer, Flair was the US champ, and Steamboat was the... You know, obviously they were younger men, but it was exactly the same thing. We, we, you know, it ends up with Steamboat putting on the rags of the of the suits, and you know, the, it, it's it's a basic rerun of this um, that they did from Mid Atlantic. Um, but he says the the big difference uh, is that uh, last time Flair did an amazing uh, promo in just his underwear, which was the lasting impression of the feud of, of that particular angle, and this time we didn't get that promo. Um, and he thinks that uh, the segment suffered as a result. Um, any thoughts on that? I didn't think we necessarily needed a promo here, but yeah, I mean, I think that's just something that he remembered that very few people would remember. Uh, I mean, you know, most people probably that were fans now weren't around then, and uh, you're talking about Mid Atlantic versus Cleveland, Ohio, so probably very few people in the crowd. I'd seen that segment. So I think that's just something that he really remembered vividly. Uh, that, I mean, I mean, there's only so many types of kind of angles and stuff you can do in wrestling that 11 years had passed. I thought this was very good for what it was and uh, really was effective in kind of getting over the match and each person's character. So I didn't, I didn't think we had to have a promo for Flair at the end. Yeah, and I have to say that this seemed this tapped into something um, that is kind of beyond wrestling as well. Like, um, I I never mentioned this, but I'm uh, I'm 30. I've been with my uh, wife since I was uh, 17. We didn't get married until 2010, but you know we started going out in high school, and we've uh, we've always been together in all that time. But a lot of my friends from back in school were kind of like. Uh, this is going to sound odd to say, but they were kind of like guys who were in sports, you know, captains of the sports team. You know, I had one friend who was, uh, like, one year he got um, 19 Valentine's cards, and um, he's always, like, ribbed me, basically, about uh, staying with the same girl. And a lot, a lot of the lines that Flair was using um, in, this, uh, in this segment reminded me of the sort of stuff that he uh, has said to me over the years. So it was kind of like... This is something that reflects something that actually goes on in real life. 
Do, do you know what I mean by that, Chad? Oh, absolutely. I mean, some background on uh, my situation. I've been married to my wife since 2008, but we're, we're kind of in the same boat where we started dating uh, while she was still and uh, a senior in high school. I was a freshman in college. Uh, so we're kind of in the same boat there where, you know, I've I've sort of kind of carried the steamboat motif for most of my adult life. And I definitely have a lot of friends that have player characteristics. And, uh, I, I mean, I don't, one thing kind of about that, though, is, I, I mean, I think that's true of a lot of viewers that may have watched this. And, it's kind of one of them things, though, whether they would be, uh, whether they would cheer for Steamboat because they can relate to him, or kind of yeah. if they would cheer for Flair because maybe you know deep down they kind of want to be like him. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. I think, yeah, I think there's kind of a lot of sort of psychological analysis you can look back into how this feud drew uh, successfully. And I, th I think in some ways it can kind of be rooted into that where, you know, maybe a lot of people were kind of conflicted yeah. on how they felt on this feud as far as who to cheer, who to boo. And as a result, just kind of became indifferent a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, speaking of my friends from back home, they, they were always like, um, I don't know what the, if, if you guys, they were basically lads, you know, they, they'd go out and they'd keep league tables the amount of girls that they'd pulled and they'd say things like every hole's a goal and uh, um, I remember when American Pie came out they'd always be like comparing themselves to different people from American Pie and I was always the basically the, uh, the, the they'd put me in the bracket of the I can't remember the, their names now but there's one who's uh, there's one there's a more boring one who's got a girlfriend who stays in and that was the kind of uh, They'd kind of try to put me in that bracket, um, but does it make you root for Steamboat if you if you are a Ricky Steamboat in real life? Um, right. it's, it's something that Meltzer talks about, and he says that um, coming out with the kid, for example, is going to make fans boo rather than cheer. It's going to or people are going to get sick of it, and uh, you know, like. <laughs> It's a difficult thing because uh, Steamboat's got his wife with him, and there's a certain way of looking at it where a certain portion of the crowd are going to think that he's a pussy whip, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, again, to him constantly bring. I mean, I think do. Uh, I mean, there's usually somebody that a lot of us work with. I know in my office, there's uh, somebody that I work with, and it, it's a female, but she's always bringing her husband up there for lunch and their kids are always kind of running around uh, creating havoc while you're trying to work and eventually you're kind of like okay it's nice that you care about your family so much but let's kind of separate yeah. the work and family life and so with Steamboat you know every match having to bring out uh, the little dragon and his wife and stuff, it kind of got a little overblown where it's like, is there any way that they can kind of sit this one out and stay at home while you wrestle, or do they constantly have to be there with you every hour of every day? Yeah. I, so I, I do agree with uh, Meltzer there that fans are going to boo that eventually if he keeps on doing it. Um, yeah. Hmm. 
And it's, it's very interesting, though, and and and, and you know, kind of sad. You know, obviously, we don't know exactly what was going on in Steamboat's personal life at this time, but just knowing kind of the rumors and stuff that we have heard about his relationship with his wife, uh, there's kind of a lot of parallels to actual real life. Yeah. To uh, what we're seeing here as far as clinginess and kind of some of the controlling aspects of no, it, it, it's, it's it's really interesting to kind of evaluate, and on the flip side, what we do know about Flair's real life, we kind of are seeing portrayed here, uh, because he was married to Beth at this time. So, what I will say, um, which is potentially interesting as well, is that you run this feud in 1998, and without doubt, Steamboat is your heel. You run run this feud in the Attitude Era, when Kurt Angle, the Olympic hero, is a heel. Um, how are you going to get over a guy like Steamboat? Like, I, I'm, di- I'm just saying that only a few, only a few years later, Flair would have been your babyface, and uh, Steamboat would have been the uh, heel. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, certainly in the Attitude Era, WWE. I mean, I think maybe in WWF in 1989, they'd have had a better chance of. Steamboat getting a more positive reaction and Flair getting a more negative one than even in NWA at this time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, lots more uh, uh, Flair Steamboat to um, to to come up in in these coming shows. But uh, yeah, I, I think this gets to something different from the um, Dusty uh, Flair feud, where it's about the common man versus the uh, the high flyer. This is about something else. This is kind of about, about uh, I guess, a jock against a, a family a family man. Um, anyway, we now we have uh, Lex Luger um, coming out against uh, Hiro Matsuta's uh, <laughs> secret um, <laughs> wrestler here, the Blackmailer. <laughs> Who is the Blackmailer? <laughs> Yeah, is there a more lame name than the Black Mailer? Uh, who, again, is Jack Victory under a mask. He did double duty. And I, I just could not, for the life of me, realize why they thought that Jack Victory was kind of the super utility guy. Because, I mean, they had faith in him to do double duty here. Uh, as we'll see in the Chi-Town Rumble, they had faith in him to replace uh, someone in one of the matches that we'll talk about. So it's it's almost like they kind of sought him as a, uh, a, I guess, like I said, a utility player that could do all these roles, and he couldn't do any of these roles well. I'd never seen, honestly never seen a Jack Victory match that I really liked, and uh, this was certainly no exception if you want to start talking. About it. Well, well, before we get into it, it's not really explored. But what, what what's this gimmick meant to be? I mean, he he's uh, under a mask, and it's kind of a slightly flashier outfit than the Russian assassin's outfit. But what's the deal with the blackmailer? What he he goes round in his mask and he blackmails people? I mean, he uh, he. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't I don't really know why they landed on blackmailer because I mean, even something like the bounty hunter that's. <laughs> pretty lame, but that that seems to go more into what the story is, because essentially the story of this match is that he was going to 
hurt Luger so much that he couldn't make it to the Chi-Town Rumble versus Wyndham. So, but I I don't know. I mean, he's obviously not blackmailing Luger for anything. Well, maybe maybe he had pictures of Lex Luger and Sting, you know. (laughs) It's just a completely stupid name. (laughs) I was saying maybe he had pictures of Lex Luger and Sting, you know, getting it on in the gym in their, in their, you know, uh, Their workout video that <laughs> Meltzer wants to produce and sell. <laughs> okay, um, so uh, obviously Luger is quite dominant at the start of this. Um, it's a, quite a slow slot with lots of headlocks and things from Lex. We get a big power slam by uh, Luger and a pretty nice one, I thought. Uh, the blackmailer uses a lot of punches, stomps and chokes. Uh, very basic uh, stuff from him. Um, he goes for a uh, suplex, which is reversed. Luger um, does his uh, Lion Man routine to come back. He goes for a superplex and hits it, which gets a three count. So another glorified jobber match, really. Um, again, on uh, on his comments, uh, Meltzer is complaining about 70s style uh, arm work. It's driving him crazy because um, today's fans don't understand it or believe in it. No. What did this get rated? One star. Oh, that's kind of surprising, actually. <laughs> so, so Meltzer has this as his match of the night so far. Um, yes, it's oh. a, it is match of the night so far. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, give us a uh, an account of this match, uh, Chad. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a glorified squash match. It goes thirteen minutes. Uh, I mean, I will say that I don't think. I mean, Lex, bless his heart, he he does not look bad in this match. I really don't think so. He just had absolutely nothing to work with. Uh, I mean, all his power moves looked good. His superplex at the end looked good. But uh, the blackmailer victory, I mean, all he literally does throughout his kind of control segment is choke and kind of club each other. Uh, so he just, he kind of clubs legs, and he does have a few sporadic, decent punches, but then they're followed up with just this really over-exaggerated uh, choke and kind of raking of the eyes, and really kind of a heel 101 offense course is what we see. Uh, so this match, I could kind of understand the sentiment of this match, and what the story they were trying to progress, but it just went on way too long for what it should have been. And, uh, I mean, Luger should have kind of taken maybe uh, kind of uh, uh, an early attack from the blackmailer and overcame that and finished him off quickly instead of 13 minutes of what we got. You know, you know those uh, worst gimmicks ever conversations that go on? I never see the blackmailer mentioned, but I'm just thinking about it more. The blackmailer. It's like what? It's like um, like the worst superhero you can possibly think of. Yeah, it, just, it, it really. I mean, it just seems like from a name to the way he was dressed. Uh, I mean, it just seems like something you'd see on kind of a cartoon. One of these kind of low, absolute low bottom of the barrel villains on a cartoon. This just. Uh, really awful. Oh man, the blackmailer. So um, Bob Coddle uh, talks with Rick Steiner now, 
um, who seems uh, slightly less moronic than usual. Um, and I, I am very interested to see what you make of uh, a Rick Steiner uh, match coming up, uh, Chad, given your comments before. Um, but the next match here is Mike Rotunda versus Steve Williams. Uh, sorry, I've got to stop thinking about this blackmailer. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> Mike Rotunda and Steve Williams versus the Fantastics uh, for the US uh, tag titles. Um, obviously, uh, the Varsity Club are defending the belts, are using the Freebird rule here, where any two of the three can uh, defend the belts. Uh, Ross says that Rotunda and Williams are, are uh, like high school bullies. Um, we get back and forth between Rotunda and Rogers to start. Uh, Williams and Fulton take over. Uh, Rotunda is quite vicious, uh, ramming Fulton into the turnbuckle. Um, we get a great knee lift from Fulton on Rotunda. Jim Ross is uh, ashamed of Steve Williams, he says on commentary. Um, so it's like he's kind of taken ownership of... Uh, like he recognizes the fact that Steve Williams is his boy and he's behaving badly here. Um, Fulton is our face in peril. Uh, the Varsity Club uh, are quite intense uh, on offense during this match. Um, Ross is using a line about this uh, being a wrestling show quite a lot. So I, I get the f impression that George Scott has told Jim Ross, get over, this is wrestling. Because um, he mentions it about, I'd say about 20 times during the show, that this is wrestling. Did you notice that? Yes, he, uh, he definitely, which kind of sort of sad me, because there is the uh, kind of iconic, Jim Ross called during the uh, Wrestle War match between Flair and Steamboat, where they're absolutely laying into each other with chops, and he sort of excitedly yells out, "This is the NWA." That's always been kind of one of my favorite calls yeah. uh, because it's at a real heated moment. So it's kind of disappointing to see that he was using that line uh, pretty much for any high impact move here. He would say, you know, this is the NWA, this is wrestling you're not going to find anywhere else uh, when somebody executed like a suplex or something. So. Yeah. And the subtext there, of course, is that what you're going to get from New York is a cartoon and what you're going to get here is proper wrestling action, right? Right. We get a gorilla slam from Williams on Fulton and a four-point stance. Uh, Fulton blocks the Oklahoma Stampede, though. Um, we get a hot tag to Rogers, who unloads on Williams. Uh, Rotunda trips him from the outside, though, and um, Williams misses an elbow. We get a flying body press from Rogers um, on Williams, but uh, Teddy Long is tied up with Fulton and misses the pin, so Rotunda gets in with a cheap shot on the back of Rogers' head, and that's the three. Um, and I thought this was quite a good match, and probably the best Rotunda performance we've seen. What do you think, Chad? I don't think I liked it as much as you. I, d I didn't... I didn't really like it a whole lot, actually. Uh, I thought the pace was kind of slow. Um, at one point, Fulton and Williams are going uh, across the ring, and their feet get mixed up, and they both fall. <laughs> and that sort of takes a real while for them to get back together. You can see Dr. Death clearly calling spots as he like locks on a face lock. So that, that didn't look very good at all. Uh, I mean, Dr. Death, I thought once he hit Fulton and Fulton tumbled to the outside and threw him on the guardrail, I thought that uh, I thought that was a nice little sequence. And then Fulton kind of spit up some, I guess, phlegm from his mouth. It was kind of gross. Uh, that was kind of bizarre, but 
worked into the work on his throat. Um, but then uh, the the finish I thought was pretty fine. Um, but uh, kind of stupid. I mean, Rogers hit the big splash and had to pin, but then Rotunda came down with a stomp right on top of his head. I, I, just, I just thought overall this match was kind of sloppier than mm. I would have expected going in. I, so I guess that's kind of what sort of took me out of it. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a bad match, but I think it underperformed, certainly, from what it could have been. The, the reason I thought that this was the best Rotunda that we've seen is that he actually showed some intensity and some viciousness and some urgency in, in his offense. Um, didn't you see that with him? Yeah, I, I would agree that this might have been the best Rotunda performance. Um, he, he was pretty good and kind of uh, definitely his sort of hitting an arm bar uh, and chin lock was cut down. In this match where he would do a long submission that wouldn't lead anywhere. We didn't get that here. Uh, his strikes looked pretty good in this match. So this was probably was his best match overall. Uh, but I thought the other three were kind of... I mean, Dr. Death, I think, certainly was not as good as he was at Starcade. No. Uh, Fulton, again, had some kind of troubles. And to me, uh, I mean, honestly, with each show time kind of seems to be running out for Fulton with me. I know he kind of does sort of a Rick Rude type pose down after he hits a move one time that kind of had me rolling my eyes. Uh, so I, I kind of, I don't know, had some problems with this match. I, I was actually slightly surprised that the Fantastic is uh, still around. I thought that the bad crowd reactions they've been getting in recent shows would have meant, would have meant that they'd have uh, pulled the trigger on those guys already. But um, they're still here. Not for much longer, though, right? It's not, it's the, yeah, no, yeah, they should be uh, pretty much on their way out. I, I, in fact, look, while you talk about the next match, I'll look and see if we uh, if we get them in another show. Because if not, I guess we can kind of talk about yeah, sort of in conclusion them because uh, they were kind of a, I mean, they were a pretty important tag team for for a lot of the '80s. And uh, this might be our last look at them. So they go. Uh, Meltzer goes two and a half on that, by the way. Um, and I think that's around right. I might even go two myself, but um, that's around the right kind of ballpark for that. Um, so the next match here is Ricky Steamboat versus Bob Bradley. Um, so basically another jobber match. Uh, Bradley um, draws a Steamboat to start. Um, and uh, eats an atomic drop for his trouble there, and a chop. We get the signature arm drags uh, from Steamboat. Ross says that Bradley has nothing to lose here, which I thought was a decent uh, thing to say. Um, he gets some uh, basic offense in, um, and there's uh, lots and lots of random fan shots doing this as well. Uh, a girl smiles straight into the camera, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. Um, lots of uh, mugging, as you would say. Um, we get a big We Want Flair chant during this match, uh, which is so big that Ross even acknowledges it on commentary, uh, but uses it as an opportunity to show the Cheetown uh, Rumble show. Um, and uh, we get a karate chop from the top by Steamboat, uh, crossbody, uh, which is uh, 
enough for the pin. So I, I don't know if you uh, find did you find any Fantastics information there, Chad? Yeah, it does look like this is it for the Fantastics. Um, so I guess kind of for me in conclusion, just real quickly on that is, um, I mean I, th I thought they had a pretty good run in Crockett, uh, definitely sort of peaked in mid 1988 with their uh, kind of their um, Clash One performance versus the Midnight's. The uh, Great American Bash match versus the Midnight's that I like. There's also a TV match which takes up the whole uh, TV block one week versus the Midnight Express. The clips we saw of them in the Crockett Cup was good. So um, I thought the, I thought their early 88 was good. Uh, but then you could sort of see them kind of losing some steam uh, from hmm. a heat standpoint, even though they still had... Uh, some good, some very good matches. I mean, obviously that Clash Four match you think is one of the best matches we've seen. I yep. think it, it's it's still really good, uh, if not as great as you think. Um, but to, kind of unfortunately, their past two performances has probably been their worst ones. Yeah, uh, and they do look a little dated. Uh, so it kind of does seem like the appropriate time to kind of phase them out. But overall, I'd say they had a good run. Yeah, I, I do think that um, Bobby Fulton in particular is a guy who's very affected if the crowd isn't on side. Um, we've seen it really hurt his performances in the past couple of shows. Um, he doesn't deal with it well, which is probably uh, not a good sign uh, for a worker. Um, you know, a, a really good wrestler should be able to turn that situation around somehow. Um, and uh, the other thing I'll say is that... Uh, I really like the Fantastics in general, and I think that um, I think that they're not talked about enough when people talk about the great tag teams. Um, like uh, a lot of guys, when they talk about wrestling from the 80s, will default to the WF teams because they're more familiar with them. Um, but how would you say the Fantastics compare, Chad, to guys like um, all of those uh, WF teams, the Islanders, the Heart Foundation, the British Bulldogs, um, I'm trying to think of some others now, the Rougeos. I mean, where would you rank the Fantastics in that sort of company? I would say, um, I mean, honestly, my opinion, kind of a few years ago when I just started watching um, a lot of Mid-South, uh, kind of the classic NWA, sort of that stuff, we're talking at least three years, probably closer to five or six years. I really thought the Fantastics were probably the third best tag team of all time. Uh, and this was before I saw a lot of Japan stuff. So I'm just saying from American wrestling standpoint, I'd probably only had them behind the Midnights and the Rock and Roll Express. Uh, and, and now I'm kind of wavering. So actually my stock on them has kind of dropped a little bit. Yeah. But I think it I think it's mostly more people being elevated, for instance, like Arn and Tolley. Hmm. Uh, for sure I'd have them probably above them above the Fantastics now. And even somebody like the Rockers, which as a kid I kinda started watching at the tail end of the Rockers run. But I I never would imagine that I like Rockers tag matches as much as I do. And their AWA stuff that I have seen before a few years ago I thought were really excellent. And uh, their stuff in the WWF I thought has been really good, having a great match with the Powers of Pain of all people. Um, but I would put the Fantastics still ahead of 
the majority of, uh, well, pretty much probably anybody else. So I'd, I'd have them ahead of the Heart Foundation, had them ahead of the uh, Bulldogs, the Rougeos, the Bulldogs, that kind of uh, team. So they're, they're definitely, I would still say, a top 10 team from the 80s in my eyes. Yeah. I'd not, Especially when you're talking about American wrestling. I'd, I'd, I'd go along with that um, as well. Um, I mean, I, I do think the uh, Heart Foundation have some really good matches um, that you can look at, um, but probably not as many as the Fantastics do. Uh, I also like... Um, one one thing I'll say about the Fantastics that isn't always is that Fulton, um, even though we've seen him drop in recent weeks, on on a good day, uh, and I've made this argument before, is better than uh, Robert Gibson, for example. And that, um, as a unit, you know, as two men in a tag team, um, they're about, they're reasonably well balanced. Like, I don't think right. Rogers is that, in, like, he's obviously better than Fulton, but he's not, like, leagues and leagues above Fulton. Like, Fulton can hold his weight, you know, carry his load. Yeah, I would say that's a great description for him, that when both of them are kind of firing on all cylinders and working they have they have a kind of different personality that they still work and they're different individuals but they are well balanced where you're definitely not thinking as a viewer it's like oh my god why don't uh why don't tommy look elsewhere for another partner because you know fulton's really holding him down so um what do you think of this uh, Ricky Steamboat Bob Bradley match <laughs> well to get back to this uh, I thought this was Honestly, probably the most damaging thing we saw on this show, maybe, which I can't even believe with a show that consists of the blackmailer, but uh, but I, th- I thought Steamboat gave uh, way too much offense to Bob Bradley. I mean, he was kind of kind of had to gut out a win, uh, and this was essentially a jobber match. It was uh, not quite seven minutes, but it felt longer than that with the amount of punishment Steamboat gave. And then he also had to do, uh, he resulted to way too many arm drags and kind of did the same thing over and over and got caught, which didn't make him look very intelligent. So I thought this was a very ineffective uh, squash match for Steamboat going into the title match at the Chi-Town Rumble. Yeah, I I didn't really understand. Um, I thought that uh, Steamboat needs to vary his offense a little bit more in a a six-minute squash match. Like, yeah, um, absolutely. It, it's meant to be a showcase to show you what he can do, right? It didn't really do that. Exactly. Um, so, uh, uh, not a lot else to say about that. Meltzer goes one and a half stars. I think that's generous. Yeah, me too. Um, final, uh, is this the final match of the night? No, 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 no. And two more. Two more, unbelievable. Uh, it, this was quite a long show, actually. Went uh, two, two and a bit hours, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, at the very beginning, Rolf says they had a two-and-a-half-hour block. Uh, you know, my tape had the commercials cut out. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was just under two hours, though, of actual, like, run time for the actual show. So pretty, pretty, uh, what I think besides maybe Clash 1, the longest Clash show we've seen as far as the actual uh, run time of it. Our next match here is uh, your favorite, Chad. Rick Steiner, uh, yeah. still the TV champion, versus Rip Morgan, um, a.k.a. the uh, erstwhile manager of the Sheep Herders. Um, now, th- 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 was this the same guy? He looked completely different to me. 
Yeah, this was the same guy. Um, <laughs> like, he looked like he'd, put, like, grown about three inches, and, like, he looked a much bigger guy here. But maybe we couldn't really see him before outside of the ring. Um, I noticed they're really pushing this Steiner Rotunda feud, aren't they? It's almost like it's almost as featured as the uh, as the main event on these past few shows. They've yeah, I think they definitely uh, kind of built the undercard around. Um, really, Steiner Rotunda, the the uh, the varsity, really the varsity club, because even back to how much the Tower of Doom match was hyped. Yeah. Uh, so we're almost to like a year anniversary mark of the varsity club really kind of been uh, been expected to fill out the undercard. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's been if if you were to pick out a semi main, uh, you've got the Cornet Paulie stuff going on, and you've got the varsity club Steiner thing going on. I I think this is given more airtime, right, in the balance of things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, here we had a few segments with different matches. The Cornette uh, versus Pauly stuff was kind of all uh, lumped into that very first match, uh, as far as hype for it. So, now, uh, Rip Morgan uh, at the start does the uh, New Zealand War Dance, um, which uh, viewers of uh, rugby will be familiar with. You ever watch any rugby matches? I have not, so I was not familiar. <laughs> this, uh, rugby is very big in my uh, home country of Wales, uh, as listeners uh, here will know, to the extent where, uh, this is something I haven't explained to you before, but growing up in Wales, um, like in school and things, it's rugby, rugby, rugby. Like you don't play uh, football, you know, you don't play soccer in school. And like we practically had to beg the teachers because they were all rugby guys. Which is one of the reasons I am such a big uh, football soccer fan, um, okay. because uh, I was kind of reacting against that. Um, outside of Wales, where it's really big, um, rugby is kind of a posh man sport. You know, uh, the uh, upper echelons of society—they always say rugby is a uh, what do they say? It's a um, something like a barbarian's game played by gentlemen. Whereas yeah, okay. uh, football, soccer is a uh, <laughs> is uh, is the is the other way around. Um, you you kind of you do sort of see that over here too, where certain states uh, have sports that kind of prevail. So when you're a kid, you'll lean towards certain sports. Like uh, in in the state of Georgia, for me, it was always baseball and football, uh, not necessarily basketball, but for a state like Indiana or even North Carolina, basketball would be a lot more prevalent. So, is 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 there a class thing as well? Because like here, um, uh, obviously class is bigger in the UK than it than it ever was in the the states. But um, the uh, like soccer is a working class game, uh, whereas things like cricket and rugby are really, uh, I, I guess, middle class or even upper class sports. Um, I would. I would say the only uh, sports where that really comes into effect is uh, golf, especially, yeah, and uh, and tennis. Of course, but, uh, but even with those, I think you're definitely seeing those uh, lines get blurred. You know, as as the years progress, where it's not as much of a well, you have to be a member of this country club and all this to 
do those sports. I, I always got the impression that wrestling is a very blue-collar thing. That it's a kind of uh, a working um, man's... I would say... I mean, I know in my school wrestling was kind of... Uh, I did... I, I, I've actually never talked about this, but I did wrestle. Oh, did you? And, uh, yeah, I did wrestle in middle school and a couple years of high school and then went to... Uh, Went to golf, which is not a transition you see much, <laughs> but uh, but uh, and 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 a lot of ways. I actually have a kind of fun story I'll talk about real quick. Um, my first day in wrestling practice, uh, in seventh grade, they kind of at the very end they got us out on the mat, and the coach was like, "Well, let's let's see what you can do." So, I uh, I was wrestling this guy and. I, I actually was able to get him in a a, a shoe full Nelson. Wow! On, on the uh, <laughs> on the first day of practice, and uh, the coach flipped out and informed me that that was a uh, illegal hold in amateur <laughs> wrestling. And uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show Saved by the Bell. Yeah, I've when, seen it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, in the, in the one of the episodes there, uh, one of the wrestling scenes, uh. They they do a shoot full Nelson. So when, <laughs> when the when the coach got on me, I uh, I justified it by saying that uh, I saw it on safe by the bell. Wow. Uh, so then I had to do a couple of laps. Uh, but <laughs> wrestling really was a goody uh, kind of sport um, for us. It was one of the. It, it was definitely tougher than I played football, baseball. Um, you know, golf's obviously not a, a yeah. physical demanding sport, but uh, but I played football and baseball and even some uh, basketball earlier in my life, and wrestling was a lot tougher uh, from a practice standpoint and from a uh, performance standpoint than any of those sports, even football for me. So uh, it, it was, it, but uh, I mean, most of our team was kind of comprised of. Uh, you know, antisocial, uh, bigger kids that sort of found an outlet with wrestling. Right, but I'm still going to call you Chad AC Slater Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to. I mean, this this uh, when I was when I did amateur wrestle was when the Attitude Era happened. So you you did see a lot of that where I mean you you'd see uh, the other teams when we'd go to these meets the teams would have the uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin kind of glass breaking as they came out on the <laughs> <laughs> it's just completely ridiculous we I mean in our team we all had our own like gimmicks so, oh my uh, god my little moniker was Mister Intensity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but uh, the it idea the idea of guys bad. coming out to theme music is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it was ridiculous because you know we'd just be standing there and they'd be like, you know, here's here's Central High School, and we'd come out, and then all of a sudden you'd hear. Uh, I know, I know, on two separate occasions, one time we heard the uh, the glass break, and here they came, and then on the other one you heard the rocks themed music. So you're just standing there and. I mean, wrestling's not a big uh, spectator sport in high school. No. So, so it's essentially, uh, you know, my parents and everybody's parents and a few uh, sporadic fans are there watching the meet. So, 
all of a sudden in front of about 28 people you hear, do you smell what the rock is cooking? <laughs> and you see 12 white kids with zits all over their face come charging out from the locker room. It's uh, pretty completely ridiculous. Um, I, I guess my initial point was that, I mean, I, did, I wasn't uh, saying that amateur wrestling is a blue-collar thing. Because I don't think uh, it necessarily is, especially if it's uh, wrapped up with, you know, varsity, with university um, uh, and college and high school and things. But uh, pro wrestling is a is is a blue collar thing, right? I mean, the sort of crowds that you'd get going to to the wrestling uh, would typically be your working men, right? I, w- I would say certainly in the south. Um, I mean, maybe up in WWF, it seemed like they had, in some ways. Uh, maybe a higher class clientele. Uh, I mean, but they obviously had a lot of, like, Bruno San Martino really uh, resonated with the Italian working class. So, yeah, I would say generally across the board that would be true. So, so anyway, let's. Uh, that was a very interesting digression there. A uh, very entertaining one for me. <laughs> um, it, as we start out here, uh, uh, Morgan uh, takes um, Steiner to the turnbuckle and then Steiner uh, himself headbutts the turnbuckle several times to get over how hard his head is or how headshots are going to affect him. Um, I guess because he's got no brain cells to lose. Uh, Steiner gets on uh, all fours like a dog. Um, Rip Morgan is basically a Bruiser Brody clone, I noticed. Um, a very bad Bruiser Brody clone. Steiner gets a belly to belly suplex out of nowhere for three. So this is basically another jobber match. Um, and uh, uh, any further thoughts about this? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's really hardly nothing to say about this. I guess the best thing we can say is it was thankfully kept short, a lot shorter than the other stuff we've seen. I, I thought Steiner's uh, belly to belly and power slam looked good. And um, I mean, Morgan didn't do a whole lot and then Steiner finished him off. So, I mean, this was, a glorified squash, for sure. Did uh, any of the Steiner spots annoy you at all? He- uh, I mean, I mean, I actually think he kind of... I, I didn't think anything in this match was as annoying as him biting the ass of uh, of Rotundo uh, in the Starcade match. So, so actually, for a Steiner uh, performance, this was kind of on the low end of a spectrum as far as I was annoyed by him. So we've got a Bob Coddle now, who's with Sting, Junkyard Dog, and Michael P.S. Hayes. Sting is excited. Uh, Hayes says he's uh, Hay- Hayes basically says that he invented the six-man tag, um, which is uh, is that true? Did did they uh, invent the six-man oh, tag? I mean, I'm sure he didn't invent the six-man <laughs> tag, but uh, but certainly, um, I mean, in the '80s, the six-man tag was kind of associated with the Freebirds, so. Yeah, and versus the Von Erichs, right? Right. right. Uh, Hayes is pretty good on the mic, I think. Um, I was going to make my top uh, 10 or even 20 uh, mic workers thread on PWO, uh, and uh, I was considering where I'd put Michael Hayes. I think he's uh, he's one of the better guys on the mic. Certainly a contender. Sullivan is uh, creeping around, uh, and um, basically as the faces go back to the locker room, he chains the gate. Uh, shut and the faces are locked in. Uh, they're they're stuck down there now, which is uh, a little bit unusual. 
So the Warriors are the, back to the ring now, and the Row Warriors come out to Iron Man, and they look pretty badass. Their tag team partner here, of all people, is Ten Ryu. Now, what in the hell is he doing here in 1989? I, d- I don't know, uh, but yeah, we have the Road Warriors uh, and Janichiro Tenru coming out with him, uh, with his name misspelled by Crockett, so that was nice. Uh, now, wouldn't it have made sense for this to be, for him to be the guy to take out Lex Luger? For him to be the guy that Hiro Matsuta is bringing in. I, now, I did not even think of that, but that that makes uh, perfect sense. Um, and you could even maybe even have Jack Victory unhooded. I mean, I, I don't know what you want to do, but that that would have been a lot better. And actually, I kind of pissed that you mentioned that part because now I really kind of want to see a 1989 uh, Tenry versus Luger match. Yeah. So. But out of all the random appearances we've seen, this is the one that shocks me the most. Because oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean this 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 is sort of Tenru kind of his. Um, and I made a post about this on PWO last night. Like that's the thing that I love about Tenru and and why. Um, I I mean this is a guy that now is on a Clash main event. Uh, he's been in a WrestleMania. He's sung karaoke in the ring as part of Hustle. Uh, so, I mean, this is a guy that's really done it all. I kind of compared it to uh, some, I mean, over here, sometimes you meet these guys that work in your office and stuff like that, and then they're sort of like an onion where every time you talk to them, you figure out another layer where they kind of restore cars on the side and are also in a garage band and just kind of have these like very weird interests that you wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, notate that they would have. Tenor is kind of like that with where he shows up. He kind of just comes in in random spots that you don't expect him uh, throughout wrestling history. Yeah, well, um, and this is right in the thick of the jumbo feud, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, this match, um, I don't know where you ended up ranking it uh, on the All Japan set, but this was a week before he had the, uh, I I thought, a great match with him and Kawada versus Jumbo and Yatsu. Yeah. I think it's like 226.89 is when it uh, occurred uh, in Cork and Paul. So this, this was, you know, 10 days or so before that happened. Wow, well... Anyway, uh, um, as uh, as they come out here, the Varsity Club sneak attack them. Um, the faces are still locked up. And uh, is this a face turn by the Row Warriors here? I mean, that, that's what I was kind of... I mean, it, it sort of... I, I sort of kind of gathered... It looked like a little bit of a face turn to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they certainly worked face versus the Varsity Club portion of the match. Um, but then when the faces eventually do escape, which we'll talk about, they kind of resort back uh, as well. So they kind of seem to be in and out. But, uh, you know, as we see, you know, in the pay-per-view, they face the varsity club. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think essentially for them, this was kind of a glorified face turn. It, Ross is saying, I mean, Ross on commentary says this is the bullies versus the bullies. Suggesting right, that they're right. still heels, but this is as good as a face turn, I think. Um, right. 
Rotunda and uh, Tenryo go at it at the start, uh, and I've just written, this is all so weird. I mean, it's just bizarre. Um, if we have this scenario where Tenryo is just in the middle of all these guys, um, it's not even meant to be a match, because the faces, the official match is the faces versus uh, Row Warriors and Tenryu, and the Varsity Club have jumped it. Um, but yet, the ref is there, they're tagging in and out, the bell's gone. It's like, it seems we have an impromptu three-on-three match uh, here now. Um, and the ref is calling it. Uh, anyway, after this goes on for some time, the faces, uh, it takes them an age actually, but they do actually finally get out. Uh, we see them being un unlocked, although we, they don't hit the ring straight away. Yeah, the, the, there's a couple things. I mean, first off, how long does it take to pick a lock? I mean, <laughs> it took about through a commercial break and everything else for them to pick this lock. So then they finally get bolt cutters and cut the damn thing. And you see, you know, obviously Steam comes charging out like a sprint runner. And then, you know, we get three minutes of nothing. And, you know, it's like, were they across the street or down the road? I mean, how long could it possibly take with him running full blast for them to get to the ring? So that, that drove me nuts, the, just from a logistics standpoint. They do take a huge amount of uh, time to get to the ring. Um, as as they're doing so, Rotunda posts Animal and nails his shoulder on the uh, railing. Um, they're trying to dislocate Animal's shoulder. We get a spike pile driver by the heels, um, as the well, I said by the heels by the Varsity Club, as the faces hit the ring, um, and then it's just total mayhem in the, in the, in there. We get basically a nine man brawl here, uh, and I noticed the JYD and Tenryo pair off at, at one point, which is uh, just shocking uh, to see those two uh, in the same ring. Um, uh, I noticed that uh, ten, uh, he chops uh, Rotunda at one point. It's everybody against everybody. Uh, wholly overbooking Batman, I've written. Um, what do we think of uh, this match and, uh, and of George uh, Scott's first show? Yeah, this was a, uh, a cluster fuck uh, all around as far as this match. Just basically ended in mayhem. Um, uh, Tenru, before he pairs off with JYD, him and Hayes has a kind of little... Uh, session together, and I thought that was an interesting matchup that I'd like to have seen. Uh, but watching this match, I mean, it's 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 a nothing match, and it really, to me, confirmed that the Flair versus Steamboat confrontation really should have ended this show. Yeah. Uh, because that was clearly the hottest segment on the show as a whole, uh, and overall, this clash may have been the uh, worst we've seen, which is kind of shocking. When uh when you got Clash Three in the canon, but this this is bad. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Melter says in his comments that Steamboat should have actually come out. Um, the Steamboat match should have come before the angle because it's kind of anticlimactic for all that to happen, and then him to have this pretty crappy match with Bob Bradley. Agreed. Agreed. Um. Yeah. So. Um. I mean, Melter's main takeaway is that there's a lot of seventy style mat work in this. Uh, car. Did you see that? Did you agree I mean, with him? As far as saying like what a seventy style. I mean, I don't. I mean, was seventy styles might work different from sixties, fifties? You know what I mean? Yeah. I kind of, I kind of think that may just be an unfair label. I just think there was some goofy booking. Uh, the matches that shouldn't have went long went long. 
and there, I mean, there really wasn't many competitive matches on this show. I mean, uh, I mean, the the final match was just a uh, just a mess all around, and then you had Morgan versus Steiner, which is a squash. Steamboat versus Bradley, which was a squash. Uh, Varsity Club versus Fantastics was competitive. Blackmailer versus Luger was a squash. Uh, Casey versus Reed, they tried to make that a competitive match when it shouldn't have been. And then the opener, which was maybe a little bit above a squash match, but not a ton. So there just wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, kind of what I said about uh, Clash 4 and how they were able to hype up Starcade while still having a very good standalone show. Yeah. They really failed in all facets here because they, they did hype up Chi-Town Rumble uh, with the Flair versus Steamboat match pretty well. But they just, uh, you know, if you tuned into this show and heard, well, this is just a glimpse of what you're going to get Monday night. I mean, if I was thinking I'd have to pay to watch this shit, I would not be a happy person. No, so. The two thoughts I had. One was, is George Scott basically out of touch? You know, is he? Is this evidence that this guy is stuck in a different time frame? Um, I don't know what you think about that. Do, do, do you think there was anything outdated about his booking style here? Mm, well, not here, but I do think... I, I mean, I do think, though, that I don't know who necessarily was booking the Flair versus Steamboat feud. But I do, I do think that that feud is kind of something that's different, and you don't really see much. Uh, so I kind of give him a little bit of a pass with that. Um, the other thought I had is that, and I brought this up before, I was shot down on the PWO boards by uh, our friend uh, JDW for saying this, but I will maintain it. And I've just brought up the old uh, solely.org here, the roster for February 1989. It's very thin, you know. There's not a lot of people who they could put in there um, five days before a pay-per-view. So, uh, Soli's got 28. So this is Soli.org, which is a great resource if uh, if you if you're not familiar with it. Hit the NWA roster for February '89. He's got 28 guys listed there. And of the guys that we didn't see tonight, I'm trying to have a look here. We know that he's got Zabisco listed. We know he's gone. Jimmy Garvin uh, is coming in inbound. Um, Ron Simmons, we didn't see. Who else is? Who else have they actually got? Who we didn't actually see? Stephen Casey is one of the named guys listed. Cowboy Bob Orton, Dan Spivey, um, and I don't know if these guys has entered yet. But I mean, th- there's not a whole lot of people that we didn't who weren't already on the card that they had there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I do think though they could have. I mean, even. You know, for instance, one thing that they could have done, like a singles match with Bobby Eaton versus Dennis Condry. Yeah. I mean, mean, something like that would have been interesting. Uh, I don't know if Jimmy Garvin was still hurt at this time or, uh, uh, but, you know, Eddie Gilbert, I don't think there was any reason for Eddie Gilbert not to be on this show because he was pretty hot around this time unless he was injured. Uh, you know, just coming off that tag match where Steamboat debuts. I mean, that's sort of uh, Eddie Gilbert's kind of the person that gets the ball rolling on that. So, I, I mean, I definitely think they could have done uh, other things in this show to make it an overall better show. Curious listing here, uh, and he's on the January 89 roster as well. The Iron Sheik? 
yeah, now uh, we will be seeing the Iron Sheik in a couple of upcoming shows, so uh, be prepared. <laughs> he's, uh, he, he, he's forthcoming, okay. Yes, yes. Um, all right, That's so... not somebody that I would have pointed to do, uh, to, um, <laughs> to uh, increase the card, but <laughs> he's there. Oh, well, he was a decent worker in his time. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, this was not one of the better shows. So let's uh, let's try to do our uh, awards then. Match of the night for you. Um, match of the night, I'm actually going with the opener. Um, I, I think there's really only it and the Fantastics match are the only ones that are tolerable. And uh, I kind of liked, I, I still think I'm going based on the novelty of the Midnight's his faces, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I guess I'll just go with that, but that's that's the, definitely the worst match of the night that I've given for a show so far. I'm going to go with Fantastic vs. Varsity Club. Um, it's slim pickings, but I hate the Russian Assassins. I'm not going to yeah. give them match of the night, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, MVP... Uh, my MVP, I think this may be a first time for me, but I'm picking somebody that didn't wrestle uh, in this show, and that's Ric Flair. Um, I thought he did great in the segment with Steamboat um, and kind of an iconic Flair moment with him with the ladies around him, so I'm going with Flair. Oh, I hadn't considered that, actually. Shall I change my mind here? I feel like I've picked Ric Flair a lot recently. Um, my My original choice was Mike Rotunda. Um, but it seems like a very weak pick, considering what we saw. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch up here and say uh, Ric Flair as well. That line, "Go back to your missus and do the dishes," is a is is a really good line. And he uh, he was having a you could tell he was having fun with this, and right. uh, I thought he was terrific. Um, and I actually thought that he pushed the right buttons to like. The things that you'd imagine would rile Steamboat up, with exactly the bush, the buttons that he pushed. So, exactly. yep. uh, I I do think that from Steamboat's side of things, uh, obviously you know we have the in-ring work, but I think from his uh, promo and kind of angle point of view, he probably needs to step up a little bit. He wasn't quite at the races uh, on this particular show, in my view. I agree with that. Um, so Billy Graham Award. Superstar Billy Graham. Um, my Billy Graham's gonna be Jack Victory, Bright Miller, Russian Assassin Two, whatever <laughs> you want to call him. Because again, uh, I don't, I don't know what anybody saw in this guy, but they must have saw something. But he was bad in the opening tag match and got worse as the blackmailer. So just a complete uh, failure all around. Hmm. Now I am tempted to go for. Stephen Casey or Butch Reed because that match was horrible. Seventeen yeah, that was minutes. A bad match. Um, hmm. But then the, there was that like thirty seconds of good stuff from Casey that you mentioned. That's kind of the only thing weighing on my mind here. No, I'm going to go for the blackmailer, <laughs> uh, specifically in that match, um, just because he brought nothing, you know. And right. it, the, the story of that match was that. Uh, the blackmailer was meant to be, um, you know, hurting Luger before his match with Wyndham, right? And yeah, we didn't get yeah, any of that. He was, he was, like, kind of making him weak going into the match. And, yeah, we got nothing of that. So. 
really pathetic. I don't, and it made Hero um, Matsuta look like an idiot as well. Exactly. Um, so that's my Billy Graham Award winner as well. Right, well, we've, we've come to the end of that one. Next show, of course, is uh, um, Chi-Town Rumble. Chi-Town Rumble. Chi-Town. Chi-Town. Um, but uh, shall we do the comments to close? Yeah, let's do the comments on that. Um, yeah, the Chi-Town, just real quick, the Chi-Town Rumble, uh, that, I mean, I, I've always thought that was a pretty good show, so I'm looking forward to see if that holds up. But kind of a lot of different things happen. A few title changes and stuff like that. Uh, people leaving the company, so an interesting show overall. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it it it, def- it definitely uh, is an interesting show. And is that the only that's the only time they run that as a pay per view, right? Under that, yeah. Name? As far as a pay per view name, uh, the Shy Town Rumble is the only time that's happened. I mean, I, obviously it's because they're in Chicago, Shy Town, so. Uh, Kind of a standalone uh, pay-per-view name and concept. Um, shall I uh, go for uh, the kayfabe commentaries one? Because I think we'll get through them a bit quicker. Um, I don't know okay. how you're going to deal with the... We split up the uh, workload here. You're going to do the PWO comments. I'll do the kayfabe memories. But the PWO comments have exploded the past few days. So I, I don't know how... We're, I'll leave you to decide how you're going to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, what a... Uh, I mean, what I'll probably end up doing, and thanks uh, to everybody that has commented, I, I think it's been great to kind of talk about, uh, especially the last show, because, I mean, honestly, just talking about it and mulling it over and thinking about it has really uh, made me contemplate the Steam versus, I mean, Steam, the Luger versus Flair match from Stargate. Uh, yeah. I've really done a lot of analysis after the fact on that match and went back and watched uh, a good portion of it again. Uh, so thank you to everybody that's commented. Yeah, and and actually, uh, to, on that point, I'll say that, that that match has probably risen in my estimation since we did the show. I know I was slightly down on it when we uh, when we talked about it, but thinking about it more, I like it better because the uh, the finish makes so much sense and yeah, various yeah, other that, things. Right, I think that's exactly... Away. I mean, that match, as far as a structure standpoint, it's not my favorite type of match with the babyface dominating so much. For, but from a logical standpoint, I really don't think you're going to see uh, many matches that logically work and build as well as uh, that match did. So. so this is a brain follower who's on the Kayfabe Memories uh, board, and uh, he's talking about, uh, I think, the Clash 3 show, because what happened was is that we recorded Clash 3, Three and four, and the Starcade show, all kind of back to back, and they were uploaded kind of after the fact. So a lot of these comments predate, um, uh, kind of. We haven't actually been together for a while on uh, on recording, right, Chad? Between these comments, like a lot of these comments happened after after the fact. So there's a bit of a, that's why there's so many comments uh, this week. Yeah, we, I mean, we recorded on a Thursday and then a Sunday. Yeah. Uh, but, but four shows comprised of those three days in between the recording. Yeah. So, yeah. So Brain Follower says about the Clash 3 that he ad- agrees 100% with, uh, about JR's commentary in the Rotundo uh, Armstrong match. You'd think that Brad was facing all four horsemen. 
in a four-on-one no no DQ match from the way that Ross uh, makes things sound. Um, he says uh, one of the things about Clash Three that puzzles him, and it's a pretty basic problem, um, is that he's not sure what the point of the show is. He says I uh, I always used to compare clashes to Saturday Night's main event. Watching this show, maybe that isn't fair. Uh, SNME uh, was all about hyping pay-per-views, advancing storylines, hooking new viewers with fast-paced, exciting, but fe- usually fairly short matches with all these draws and DQs. I'm really baffled by uh, what they were attempting to do, and hence it makes it very hard for him to critique. Um, he also says that it's uh, very interesting listening to uh, my comments about uh, the UK uh, WF tapes. He says, in his neck of the woods, I think you were saying this as well, SummerSlam 88 was one of the easiest tapes to get. Um, and in general, uh, none of the pay-per-view uh, era, none of the Hogan era pay-per-views were hard to find. But um, some of the more random tapes, for example, uh, the George Steele, Bruno Sammartino, Campatera, or Brutus Beefcake tapes. Um, and uh, even today, they'd fetch high dollars on eBay. And he says the uh, he says the referee of the year was an NWA internal thing. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to. He also says, uh, maybe Parv can explain to me why the UK is so censorship friendly. Things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which doesn't usually have much screen violence, uh, Evil Dead and many other horror movies were banned as well. And even something as child friendly as Doctor Who was in constant trouble for its violence. Heck, I even want to say that they weren't allowed to use the word ninja on TV, hence we get Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Which is correct. Um, They did have... Uh, we have something called the BBFC here, which is the uh, censorship board. And um, I remember that, like in the 80s, they were very sensitive about um, uh, about certain things on children's shows. Um, so they 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 thought Ninja, for example, was too violent, so they changed it to Hero Turtles. And they also um, they were concerned in Thundercats that uh, one of the characters, uh, Panthro, has a pair of nunchucks. They didn't want those nunchucks shown, and there was a quite a lot of stuff about that as well but in recent I'd say in the last 20 years or so they've really become a lot uh, different in their philosophy so all sorts of things now um, which would have got an 18 rating in the past get a 15 and all sorts of things that would have been banned in the past get an 18 um, things like uh, what's that human centipede and things like that you know uh, they're a lot laxer with the censorship these days um, did you want to uh, Say anything to Brain Follower before I move on, Chad? Mm, not much I can add to that. I think you described what the situation was in England well. Um, it, 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 he then says of the uh, Clash 4 show that the, uh, histi- the history of Jim Hurd is largely whatever Ric Flair says it is to most uh, smart fans. So if Jim Hurd was the greatest moron in history of the universe, which uh, Ric Flair clearly thinks is the case, then that's what he was. But he says that he's not so sure. If anything, uh, Heard seemed to want to get competitive with Vince using Turner's money to do so by hiring Hogan, Hogan and Savage back in 1990. The problem was that Heard didn't have the style and savvy to impress Turner the way Bischoff did. Um, I actually take Heard's side in the, his dispute with Flair, but that's uh, another story. Um, he's not as crazy about the opener as I am. And uh, well, he says a few other things about the... Uh, Clash uh, 4 show. He says the Road Warriors heel turn uh, was a case of Dusty needing new opponents um, and it would be easier to get the uh, titles off them once they uh, turned heel. Possibly, he says. Um, 
the the fact they never won it until the day they turned heel is another amusing example of uh, Crockett WCWs. We don't have to send the fans home happy. Uh, they will always come back for more philosophy. So I don't know. Maybe we can touch more on her uh, when we when we get to 1990. I think um, Edison uh, Cheapy he's catching up basically. Uh, with uh, with different shows there, he, he talks a bit about the uh, the bash show. He says that the Ron Garvin heel turn was pretty uh, a shocking swerve, um, and he he recalls the Aptomags mentioning in their news section how an episode of one of the JPCP shows. He, he says he wants to say pro worldwide, where uh, Garvin didn't show up for a tag team match, leaving his partner Jimmy Garvin alone. He says I don't remember the opponents, but he shows up later and claims to have car trouble. So they were kind of teasing the uh, heel turn. There was also a Jimmy Garvin interview with one of the magazines where he bemoans Precious acting weird because of Kevin Sullivan and then mentioning how Ronnie was behaving strangely as well. So they did semi-tease the, the turn there. Um, old School Dude says, I really enjoy these podcasts. They bring back a lot of 80s memory for me. The only problem I have is when uh, they could balance out the audio levels. One guy is very low and the other is very hot. And I, I think uh, if you listen to the early shows, that's definitely a problem we had, wasn't it, Chad? Where I was quiet and you were loud. Yeah, well, um, one thing I've tried to do is talk lower. Um, I'm a naturally loud talker, so a lot of that kind of has to do with just uh, me uh, me being a loudmouth southerner. So. Yeah, the, the, the other thing was that uh, I didn't realize, but um, I just went into my sound manager and there's a microphone boost button that I had I didn't press for a lot of those early shows. Um, so I, I'm a lot louder now uh, on my recording level, and Chad is quieter. So hopefully we're we're speaking at the same level. Um, um, he, Edison Cheapy also says about John Ayres. Um, he says, uh, didn't he come in as a commissioner or some sort of figurehead in the last months of UWF? Um, and the Eddie Gilbert, Ron Simmons were definitely faces as we uh, as we talked about. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty much it from the uh, from the kayfabe memories uh, side of things. Do you want to take it away? Okay. Um, first, uh, I'm going to be reading comments about the uh, the Clash Four show, and uh, most of these deal around. Uh, the JYD promo. You know, man, I was on my way to North Kakalaka, by the way of South Kakalaka, beginning all those races, and my telephone left the room. Which, um, again, when when uh, when I watched the show live, I had no idea what he was talking about. But uh, listening back to the show, when Parr was able to edit in the promo, and I was able to kind of hone in on it with headphones, I did uh, realize kind of what he was saying so uh, King Solomon our friend uh, he's the first one and he says JYD was saying that he came from North Kakalaki by way of South Kakalaki uh, which basically means he came to North Carolina by South Carolina Kakalaki thing is slang for Carolina uh, rappers also use that verbiage which yeah you do hear North Kakalaki and South Kakalaki a lot um, and then uh, Dylan uh chimes in after that and he's from uh, the Charleston area so uh, he says Kakalaki supposedly started as a Gulagichi term on the barrier islands near where I live. Uh, it's very common to hear around here in a straightforward non-jokey way 
kind of hard to explain to those that aren't from here, I guess. <laughs> and and that that's true. Um, I have had a little experience uh, hearing kind of the Gula uh, Yichi term uh, language used uh, in Savannah when I've been uh, vacationing in Savannah. Uh, they kind of some people use that dialect. Uh, and that's that's basically. Oh, also Solomon uh, chimed in with uh, in regards to the tougher than Geraldo's nose. Geraldo <laughs> uh, was a talk show host for CBS in the eighties, and uh, apparently there was a show with the that involved the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, and Geraldo got his nose broken in the scuffle here. Um, and he has a YouTube link which I'd never seen before, but that was quite amusing. If you want to. Uh, watch that and then uh our friend Hugh chimes in with his uh, comments on the mat on the uh, show in general so he says he's always liked the first tag match on the show i can see where people might have thought it went too long for a babyface match though uh the fantastics coming across as violent in uwl where they had a famous blood feud with the sheep herders along with some bloody fights in the nwa there's one uh, main event in 88 that went like 12 minutes, but they only showed six minutes of it. What was shown was a great brawl. Also on the U.S. Tag Team Tourney, I think the Sheep Herders were originally booked to win it. There's actually a match where they went over the Fantastics that was televised in the tournament. Uh, then the Sheep Herders went to the WWL. The TV explanation was the Sheep Herders cheated on review, and Fantastics were still in the tournament. Uh, and that, that's, I'm glad she brought that up because that is one thing that I didn't mention while we were talking about that was, uh, I have watched the Fantastics and Cheap Herders brawls in UWF, uh, including their barbed wire cage match. And it is, uh, it is pretty graphic and violent. So certainly, uh, the Fantastics could rise to the occasion on the violent spectrum, uh, when needed. So that was the comments for, uh, Clash of the Champions 4, then we get on to uh, Clash of the Champions 5. Oh, no, no. Uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, Starcade 88. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Loss states right after the show was posted that he thinks Starcade 88 holds up as one of the pay-per-views ever. Uh, looking forward to listening. And uh, basically then we kind of got into a discussion on that where I, I did... Going in, I really thought Starcade 88 would be one of the better shows we've watched. Um, and coming out, I didn't think it was a bad show. I thought it was a good, to, you know, sort of, if we wanted to star rate a show, I'd probably give it like three and a quarter to three and a half stars uh, as a show. But I didn't think it was one of the all-time uh, best shows we've seen. And then uh, we get some analysis on the Flair Luger Starcade as a comparison to Flair Luger at WrestleWar 90, which uh, we'll get in depth a lot more uh, when we do the WrestleWar 1990 um, show because uh, that that match is one that I know part of you mentioned I've been kind of pimping for a while, and yeah. uh, it's one of my uh, one of my favorite matches that I've watched in quite some time. Uh, Justin Bigelow34 chimes in that he had a great time talking Starcade with us. Uh, that feeling's mutual. And then Dylan says that, uh, Harvey, you talked about how you preferred Clash 4 to Starcade. Yeah. And that you think the Fantastics versus Gilbert and Simmons is a four and a half star match. Uh, and it's the best Crockett match from 88. <laughs> 
Yeah. Dylan states that he don't think he'd go that high, but liked the match a whole lot too. Uh, he's biased because he was there live in Chattanooga, but he thinks it holds up. Um, and then he also said that he'd been enjoying the shows he's listened to so far. So thank you for that. And then the, uh, oh, the Jesus uh, Christ, yeah, our, our <laughs> old friend Lau Azado popped up. He will had a lot of uh, his uh, kind of favorite things get knocked a little bit, where AWA sucks and Lau Azado was not a big star. Um, and he says clearly this is an age thing. And, and I do think that is true. Uh, we kind of go through that again with Alzado. But I, I do think that's an age thing where, I, I mean, I've looked up, I've done a lot of research on Alzado because of the comments from that. And I, and I, I certainly think from, uh, from just looking and reading about his career, you kind of don't get his impact or lasting legacy. Uh, than if you saw him live as kind of this menacing figure. You know, uh, one of the things, I, I, I do have a little Lila Azado update here, which is uh, I've got a friend from back, uh, from back in my school days. I'm still in touch with him. Um, and I just asked him on Facebook. Like, he has no idea that I do a wrestling podcast or anything. I just said, without looking him up, uh, this is to my friend Paul, do you know who Lila Azado is? Have you heard of him? How about John Ayres? Okay, and th- this is a guy who... Uh, was a massive uh, Manchester United fan. That's a as a football soccer fan. Big sports guy. Um, and in the past, like five or six years, he's got really into NFL and into American football in a big, big way. To the extent where he um, co- is constantly doing status updates about fo- American football, constantly talking about why it's better than soccer, and it's quite interesting uh, that this sort of thing goes on. Um, but he's like really big on it. Like I think he's done several trips over to see various games and you know it's a big hobby of his and uh, so I thought it'd be interesting because obviously he's somebody who wouldn't have a background and he said that Alzado was the first NFL player to admit to Sports uh, Illustrated that he took steroids as I don't know so um, th- for a guy who's got into American football in the past six seven years that's how he knows Alzado as the, as the steroids guy basically um, so I, I just thought that was an interesting little litmus test on him. Right. Um, so then we kind of discussed AWA said a little bit. Uh, thank you to Brig Hit House for his uh, input on Lau Alzado. Uh, <laughs> and then she talks about how he enjoyed hearing the show and stuff like that. And then uh, Steve Rogers, who's actually... Uh, Somebody that uh, I've talked to on the Place to Be podcast side of things. He uh, He's a new member to PWO, but uh, he gives a comment, uh, some more kind of background stuff on the NFL, which is followed up by Ricky Jackson. So uh, kind, of, kind of quite a lot of uh, NFL talk on that. And then Shu gives his thoughts on the show. He says, I'm a big fan of Starcade 88 show. Having three tag bouts to open the show is a bit strange, but they were pretty much were forced to via the booking. I like the Wyndham Bigelow bout, so he's probably higher on that than both me and Parv. Hmm. Uh, though I can see people's point of view of not liking it, especially with that god-awful finish, which I'd agree with. It was god-awful. Uh, in regards to the Midnight's feud, it gets started with an incredible angle on the Saturday night, putting the original Midnight Express over as an invading faction who don't even work for the NWA. 
They leave Crocodile Bloody in a white jacket and destroy Stan and Bobby in the process. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should look for it on YouTube. With this angle, it would be hard to believe it was going to be a one-off deal. Crockett had the same feeling about Rose as you did, Barb. In 89, he books the loser uh, of the fall leaves town with the intention of Rose leaving. Uh, instead, Conjuring no-shows, which we'll get to at the Chi-Town Rumble show. Victory's placed in the match, and uh, actually Rose does eat the fall in that match to lose uh, to leave town of the NWA. Um, and, and I did go and search out YouTube for the Midnight Express versus original Midnight Express and solely wrestling one, I think is his handle on YouTube. He has a six part, uh, I think kind of chronologically showing the original Midnight Express versus Midnight Express feud. And I'd recommend watching that because it was a very interesting, uh, issue claim the opening, uh, angle was very well done with, uh, Cornet bloody he's spitting up blood it gets all over his jacket uh, so that's a very good uh, angle that I would encourage everybody to uh, check out and that's all of the uh, part one of Starcade 88 then uh, we do have some more comments on Starcade part 2 uh, and this is all going to be lost who kind of get a, get a running commentary for that yeah. Just listen to part two. Good show. Just so you know, I keep trying to talk to you guys while listening. I have that same problem with other podcasts. <laughs> uh, I like you guys and thought you were pretty open-minded. I wish I could say the same for your guest. He seems like a nice guy who I would probably be friends with if I knew him. But we would argue about wrestling all the time. The Luger not giving a shit talk and the Road Warrior Hawk criticism made me want to shout. But everyone is entitled, I suppose. I'll let him live for now with a smiley face. <laughs> Um, and then he says, I actually think Flair saying he'd never have a match with Luger again backfired when you get into early 89 TV. By not giving fans a rematch and making that such a key point, they were in effect building anticipation for a rematch. It's a match they could have returned to in the fall of 89 with the roles reversed, and it would have been a big success because it would have been completely fresh. I think that was the plan at one point, and it got away from them. Uh, and then he also says that the NWA booking philosophy was actually that by keeping the belt on heels, they were giving the baby face something to shoot for. There's a reason movies don't focus on the happily ever after. The path there is way more interesting. There always needs to be some type of challenge for baby faces to overcome to keep them interesting. Vince disagreed and the WWF philosophy worked for them. I think the NWA philosophy could have worked as well if Flair would have been seen as more unbeatable and less lucky. Uh, but then he agrees that we they needed to start rethinking this approach when they were on national cable TV and when selling pay-per-views became secondary to draw in the house. Yeah, I, um, I, 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 I'll just say at this point that of all, of all the uh, people who post on PWO, Lost is one of the guys who's really interesting with his opinions and his analysis. Like, um, he, he's a guy who um, definitely, if you uh, if you don't visit the PWO boards, uh, if you're not a member of it. Uh, they're worth reading just for just for what Loss says. I would say. Would you agree with that, Chad? Absolutely. Um, I mean, he's he's one of the administrators there. Uh, pretty much created or co at least co-created the board. Uh, but I would agree with that. Then we got into the uh, steamboat was signed or wasn't signed, and how much Meltzer knew, which we discussed uh, yeah. early on in the show. Um, and then we kind of. I don't know how much we want to get to that, but you can read it as far as the uh, 
between you and Loss going about how the uh, Luger uh, opinion, how he was, and yeah. really kind of pro wrestling only as a board as a whole. Uh, would everybody can read that if they would like? Yeah, the, the, the only thing I the only thing I'll mention from that is that um, I wanted to say that to, to an extent um, you can understand where Scott is coming from, even if we don't agree with him on Luger. I can understand how he's formed that viewpoint. Uh, that's all I was tr- trying to say there, really. Um, right. That, you know, the, the PWO has got this habit of uh, kind of questioning and interrogating received opinion. And if you're... Uh, all I'm saying is that, you know, Scott is a fan from Connecticut, been watching wrestling for 30 years, and during that time, there's been a lot of guys who shit on Luger. So I can understand where he gets his opinions from. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's something we should... I mean, we stated that in the thread, and I agree with that, that, um, you know, as far as our guests that we've had on this show, I think there's a, a wide spectrum of opinions that we've seen from uh, from Brian to uh, Solomon to Jason Mann hmm. to Atomic uh, Elbow, uh, and then to Scott and Justin. Each, each one of those guests kind of has a different viewpoint as a wrestling fan. Yeah. And uh, it, it can be kind of contrarian at times to the pro wrestling only, uh, some of the posters on that. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's just a difference. And I do think it kind of makes it interesting and creates more discussion. But, uh, you know, coming up on some of the shows, I know we have some pro wrestling only uh, contributors that will be on the show with us. So you'll yeah. get another viewpoint. So that'll be interesting as well. Yeah, and uh, d- d- what I'll say is, if you do want to leave us uh, any comments, uh, there's, d- I guess, three or four different ways. Um, you can join the Pro Wrestling Only board. And um, Loss, uh, who we mentioned, has actually uh, made it so that each episode has its own um, has its own feedback thread now, which is quite cool. Um, so I think that may be the main place uh, to go for comments because we essentially have a little sub forum dedicated just to just to discussing uh, different shows which is very neat and uh, I'm thankful to him for that uh, um, the other places are uh, DVDR I post updates there um, although comments don't seem to have got going uh, there uh, it does seem like a lot of people do download from from that particular thread though um, the kayfabe memories board you can comment there as well um, I don't know how quickly uh, you can join the PWO board. I know it's usually like it's not instantaneous. It takes a, it takes a while to come through. Um, so if you want to leave a comment straight away, maybe uh, you might get a quicker registration on the Kayfabe Memories board. I don't know. Um, uh, well, if if you do want to, uh, if you do try to join the PD, PWO board, um, I mean, there's a couple. What you can kind of find me on Facebook. Chad Gamble, if you want to find me on Facebook and send a message, uh, because that's what Steve uh, Rogers actually did. He yeah. sent me a message that he uh, had registered for the PWO board and was just waiting for admin approval. So I was able to kind of uh, facilitate that for him. Um, yeah, I've done that for, you, for a few guys as well. Yeah, so. And uh, the, the, the problem is, it's not the loss doesn't want new, new members on the board. It's because... Um, he gets spammed by bots, hundreds and hundreds of bots every day. Um, so he's, it's very difficult for him to tell between a real user and uh, a spam bot, basically. 
Um, the other way you can leave a uh, the other way that you can leave a comment is actually by visiting the uh, the where the big boys play blog site. Um, you know, and uh, that there's a few people who've commented there as well. But I, I think if you want to get involved in big discussions and whatnot, PWO would be the place to uh, would be the <laughs> the place to be. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. PWO is probably the especially now with the sub forum. Yeah. Uh, that'll probably end up being kind of our preferred, I guess, hub for comments. I think because that way it'll be easier to uh, to look to and reference uh, while we discuss the shows. Okay, well, great. We went uh, long and wide with comments there, but uh, it has been a, a few shows since we've done them, so we, we probably won't have that many comments in each show. But uh, it was fun to go through, and uh, sure. yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to 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 the next one after this uh, after this not particularly stellar Clash of the Champions. So I'll see you then, Chad. Okay, sounds great, Park. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage for Cowboy Bill Watts. And the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.